Let me take you to Isaiah, same place as Isaiah, chapter 50. And that's where we'll begin. Dear Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, if we need to know that we're significant, then our significance lies in our relationship with God. Okay, that's where we finished the little thoughts that I had on significance, and that's where it's at. And the more time you spend with God, the significant God, in your significant relationship with the significant God, the more significant you'll feel. I mean, it's as simple as that. You'll find that you matter. You matter to Almighty God, if you matter to no one else. And that will begin to give you a sense of worth and value, which is a search that people are on. And so you need to spend time with your words nesting at his feet. You need to spend time in worship. Um, many times people ask me what my favorite verse is, and this, I don't have a favorite verse. I have many, many pieces of scripture that are very special to me. But if I had to pick, you know, if my life depended on it, I'd probably say Isaiah chapter 50. Because there's just a couple of little verses on this theme of worshiping that have been a huge help to me, and beginning at four. Now, this is talking about Christ, the servant of the Lord, but we can apply it because we are the servants of the servant. And so we can apply it to ourselves. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear, to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. A few of those little words are very, very special to me. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue, the tongue of a teacher, to know the word that sustains the weary. He opens my ear to listen like one being taught, the ear of a disciple. And the picture is of the rabbi shaking the pupil awake early in the morning to come and learn his lessons and be instructed. Early, early in the morning. And so our, as it were, heavenly rabbi wants to shake us awake in the morning and we are supposed to go and listen. And that echoes chapter 5. Remember, when you go into the house of God, go there to listen and not to offer the sacrifice of fools. Do not be hasty with your mouth, etc., etc. Let your words be few and stand in awe of God. And so here again, uh, there's this wonderful picture that the sovereign Lord is shaking us awake in the morning. He's trying to get us out of bed so that we can meet with him. We have no idea who we're going to meet during the day who is weary, weary of life, weary of their marriage, weary of their job, weary of everything. What's the point? Their whole life has not turned out as they wanted it to be. And they're disappointed with life. And you and I bump up against people like that all the time. If you have met with him in the morning, God will give you a word for the evening or the afternoon or whenever it is that you Meet the weary one. He'll give you a word. And it will match, absolutely. I think my most famous recollection of that was, actually was writing my book on Job, which was a stupid thing to do. Don't do that. If you want to write a book, don't write it on Job, because 
I, I did have this feeling as I began to write the book, mm, maybe God's going to give me all sorts of personal illustrations for this book, which was true. However, I was just finishing my chapter on feelings and faith because Job did not feel God. His whole world had collapsed, plus he got sick. He did pretty well until he got sick. And when you feel terrible, then your faith somehow gets all mashed up in that. And so he had had it at this point in his life. And he doesn't know where God is. He cannot feel God near just when he needs him the most. So I am writing on this, trying to find answers from Job and other places. And I go and take my best friend, my dearest friend, for her last chemotherapy treatment. And after it, this point, she's dragging an oxygen tube around with her, and it's, it's all over, basically. We go and sit in her van, and we look over Lake Michigan, and there's dead silence in the van. And I said to her, what's your concept of God at the moment? And she said, God is cruel. And so I said, what do you feel? Not what do you think. What do you feel about God? And she said, I feel nothing. I look here, I look there. She almost used Job's words. I go to the north, he's not there. I go to the south, I go here. He's, where is he? Can't feel him. And God had given me, as I sought a, a paragraph to finish that very difficult chapter, he had just given me a phrase, a one-liner. And it was this, when you can't feel him with your feelings, feel him with your faith. And that feels different. It was in his knowings he was going to survive what happened to him. And it's the next couple of chapters where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job did not say, I feel that my Redeemer lives, because he didn't. But you know him in your knowings. What do you know about God? And so I said to my friend, let's play a little game. What do you know about God? I'm going to start. God is good. And there was dead silence. I shut my eyes and prayed for her. There was a long, long silence, and then very quietly she said, God is here, and I said, right. And God is merciful, and then she began, and we began, and I watched her climb up out of her pit of absolute despair into faith. And when you can't feel him with your feelings, feel him with your faith. What do you know about God? Affirm it, get on your knees and start, and worship. You are God when everything's bad. You are here, even when I can't feel you. Just go through who he is and what you know he is. So it's what we think and what we know that save us when we're in a Job-like situation. And I have written in my very first Bible, when I came across these words, God said to me, get up, Jill, and listen to me, and then go out and listen to them. Get up and listen to me. Go out and listen to them and match the word I give you as you worship with the weary one that you will surely meet along the way. And so Solomon's doing that. In chapter 12, he's coming to God. He's worshiping and words that have worshipped are words that work. And he's writing them down. He's saying, I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission. And I'm going to use every single piece of my life that's left to me that God gives me to help you not to do what I've done and to shore up your spiritual disciplines. Don't get lazy. Be reading that scroll, reading marking. 
memorizing while you're young because you sure won't be doing it when you're old. You'll just be trying to remember the way home after all of that. So wake up, listen up, speak up. That's the three things that come out of that and also are echoed. And you know, what I love about the story of Solomon is he always gives you that last chance, the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance to get back on track, to make a significant mark rather than a significant mess. And that's your choice. You have a choice. I have a choice to make a significant mark in the world because of the significant relationship you have with God. Now, remember what I said. The devil will get you at your Achilles heel. It's a bit like Edinburgh Castle. Edinburgh Castle is a beautiful castle in Edinburgh, in Scotland. And everybody goes to visit it, if you get to visit Scotland. And it's only ever once been taken in war. It's a magnificent castle and has a huge moat around it. It's one of the widest moats there are. And when it was being beleaguered one day, I don't know who was trying to take Edinburgh Castle. But what happened was they had a spy within. They had one of their men planted inside the castle. And late one night, he let down the drawbridge and they came in and took the castle. The only time it's ever been taken. And within us, we have that spy within. We have that dissenter. We have what we call the flesh. We have that person that we're born with. And they're going to let down the drawbridge at the point of your weakness. Your Achilles heel. They let down the drawbridge. And everybody has an Achilles heel. It might not be so obvious, but every single person will have that Achilles heel. And you have within you the enemy. You have the enemy within you. You've got Satan without, and you've got yourself within. And the thing is, the more you worship and the more you get to love God to distraction so you can hardly stand it, the better you will be at dealing with that enemy within and dealing with the enemy without. Guard your heart because out of it are the issues of life, says Solomon, the book of Proverbs. Guard your heart because out of it are the issues of life. That's how it is. And Solomon's heart clung to those women he should never have married. He was forbidden to marry foreign women. He married a thousand of them or whatever. For us, women outside our marriage vows are the foreign women, I suppose. I sometimes have nowhere else to go for a meal at the end of a journey but the bar. And I get there and there are these groups of businessmen there and there's groups of businesswomen there. And I just watch all this stuff happening. And I pray, quite honestly, because in my mind I know there's a little woman at home with two or three kids who's no idea that her husband's going to end up in bed with one of those businesswomen he's traveling with. But that's what happens. You go along the corridor and you just see this thing and you see the parties and you see people coming and going. And two o'clock in the morning it's still going on. So Solomon, being wise enough to get his life right with God, wants to move us towards keeping our lives right, never having all those regrets that I trust we'll never have. A life lived doing it his way is a life of fulfillment. And you get 
to that point and you get the peace, you get the joy that never ends and a life of no regrets. So somebody put eternity in your heart and said, this is possible. The God of eternity can inhabit your life. And he can be dressed with your humanity. Divinity dressed with your humanity. That's Christianity. Divinity dressed with your humanity. That's Christianity. We have a friend called Johan. He lives in Israel, but his story is an incredible story. Young man, 70s, put a backpack on, started to go around on the drug route and ended up in Eilat on the beach in Israel where a lot of kids were ending up. He was looking for the Lord, looking for the Lord. And so he built a little hut in the Sinai Desert along with three or four other travelers, they called themselves. Judy Pex was one of them, a Jewish girl, left an Ivy League school, took the drug route to Alaska, fished for a bit with the boyfriend she was living with, left him there, went to Israel to find her roots, and ended up in the Sinai in another little hut in this little community. Another guy, a Dutchman, another Dutchman, ended up there about seven or eight in this little community of travelers. And one day, John, another John, not Johan, knocked... (laughs) at his little hut door, at Johann's hut door. And the night before, he had got to the bottom of his backpack. It had taken him a couple of years to ever empty it. And he found a Bible that his mother had put in his backpack. And, of course, he'd never found it until that moment. He stayed up all night. He read most of the Bible, all that he could, that night. In the morning, John appeared at the door and rather like the man in the desert that stopped the Ethiopian eunuch, said, do you understand what you're reading? And Johann said, how can I accept somebody explain it to me? Almost in the words of the Ethiopian eunuch. And this John had just come to faith through a Messianic Jew in the marketplace. And all the lights had gone on in about a week. All the lights, because... Once the Holy Spirit comes in, one of his job is to be our teacher. Make it all make sense. And so he sat down by Johann and led him thoroughly and totally and irrevocably to Jesus Christ. God had put eternity in his heart. And Stuart and I had the privilege of having a week there with the incredible collection of people that live in that shelter. It was fabulous. And I think there were 19 or 20 nationalities in that meeting that night. And as I listened to their testimony and as I saw the non-Christians who'd found their way there, as I listened to their stories through interpreters and all these different languages, I just kept thinking, God has put eternity in their heart. God has drawn them to a place where somebody can tell them all about it. And what was so wonderful is they had this sense of time, how brief it was. And you know what Ecclesiastes says? Life is brief, 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 brief. The word meaningless can be used in different ways because Hebrew is such a rich language. And so it's it's some places brief, like right at the beginning. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless. That nuance of it there is brief, brief. Everything's so brief. So get on the bandwagon. Let's do something about it. And one thing that the Bible says is, that we are busy chasing after the wind when life is like a mist and the word is vapor. 
If you ever go out in the cold air and you breathe, what happens? You see this vapor that just disappears like that. That's the word that's used here in the book of Ecclesiastes to describe how quick it is. In fact, if you use different translations, you'll find, what is your life? It's like a puff of smoke, visible for a little while, then dissolving into thin air. That's Phillips. You're nothing but a wisp of fog, (laughs) catching a brief bit of sun before disappearing. And this, of course, comes from the book of James 4.13, where he picks up the theme, the brother of the Lord Jesus. And this is what he says. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Indeed, you should say, if it's the Lord's will, we shall live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. How do you know what will happen tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. And yet the devil's whispering in our ear, God forever. Do you remember a parable Jesus told once of the fool? The rich fool? The poor little rich man? Do you remember that parable? pull down his barns, build greater and greater and fill them up and say to your soul, eat, drink and be merry. You've got the whole of life ahead of you. And God says, you're a fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. Tonight, tonight, tonight. And we do not know. And when he calls, we have to go. Have you ever met anyone? This has managed to stay? I haven't. Your life is a mist, not a must. And the world needs to know it. What we need, if we're going to have a meaningful life and a joyful life, because the only significant joy that you'll find is in your relationship with God, the only deeply lasting, everlasting, significant element of joy that you'll find is in your relationship with him. You need a spiritual dimension to your life. I told this story when I first did Ecclesiastes in the church service, of finding myself sitting on a plane next to the poker champion of the USA. <laughs> and uh, I knew he was somewhat colorful when he came in the aeroplane. Um, he jangled, you know, he had all his gold on and his, his clothes were quite incredible, and I, I, as he was heading down the aisle, I thought, hmm, I think I'm the only one with a seat empty here, so he's going to sit right by me, which he did. And he was talking to me halfway down the plane. <laughs> oh, you know, and he was, he was bright, and he was loud, and he was very colorful, and I had no idea. Was he a race car driver? You know, he was obviously somebody um, flashy and important, and we were near Las Vegas, so I thought, oh yeah, you know. Well, he sits down, and before he sat down, he's saying to me, do you know that I'm the poker champion of the USA? And I said, well, no, I didn't know that. (laughs) But I'm glad to meet you. My name's Jill Briscoe. And so he sits there, and I listen to to him going on, and I learn a lot. I said, you know, I don't know anything about poker champions at all. So I said... (laughs) Tell me about yourself. Well, I didn't even need to say, tell you about myself. He didn't, he didn't need permission. But he was a real neat guy. I really liked him. 
And he just kept me absolutely fascinated and told me he was going to one more poker championship and he was going to win it because there was nobody there that was going to do anything about this, etc., etc. Well, I listened and listened and I said, you know, I've listened very carefully. You've told me about your wife and your children, your houses and all of this and all the championships and that you retired at the age of 28 or something like that because he had enough money. And I said... I haven't heard that you've got a spiritual dimension to your life. Do you, do you have one of those? He said, what's that? So I said, oh, I, I thought you might not have one, so I just wanted to check. But, you know, to be really happy, you need a spiritual dimension. You have all these dimensions to your life, but you don't have a spiritual dimension. And he said, well, I'm happy enough without one. And I said, well, wouldn't you like to be happier? So he looked at me and he said, well, you've got me there, haven't you? Because if I say no, that would be silly. Who wouldn't want to be happier? But I couldn't be happier. I said, you can't know that. Mm -mm. You can't know? Yes, I can know that. I said, no, you can't. Because you haven't got a spiritual dimension to your life, so you cannot talk with authority about what you'd feel like if you had. But I have, so I can talk with authority about it. And, And I don't have all the dimensions you have. But let me tell you, and I told him about my dad, who had all the dimensions he had, who lived in a castle, his own salmon river, and had done it, as Ecclesiastes said, with the labor of his own hands. Started buying bicycles and fixing them and knocking on doors and saying, can I help you mend your car? As as a boy of 16, swearing he would never work for anyone else, only for himself. And he did, and he built one of the biggest automobile empires in Britain. And then he bought his castle and he did, he did his thing. And I told him about my mom coming to visit me in my little tiny cottage at the youth center where we served. And her very wistfully saying as she was leaving, God lives here, doesn't he, Jill? And I said, yes, mom. And I took a deep breath and I said, I'd rather live in my cottage with Jesus than in my castle without him. And she just nodded sort of sadly and said, I understand. And then she left. She didn't want to leave. Little tiny cottage we lived in. Nothing like my castle I'd been brought up in. But oh, the joy. It was almost tangible. And oh, the love. She didn't want to leave it. You see. Why? Because he lived in my cottage with me. And I had that spiritual dimension. And that's what it is. You have to say to people, wouldn't you like it to be better? They're so busy with time and its toys, they're chasing the wind. Isn't that a phrase? Do you know anyone chasing the wind? So frustrating to chase the wind. You never catch it. But man is listening to Satan and he doesn't acknowledge it. That he's limited. He doesn't think he's limited. He thinks he can go to the moon, which he has done. But he isn't God. Though sometimes he acts like he thinks he is. He might be bright, he might be capable, but on his own he cannot create. On his own he isn't sovereign. He's not the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He didn't make the universe, neither can he sustain it. He cannot hold all things together. 
By him all things stick together, all things consist. And if he didn't hold it all together, the planets and everything else would spin off, gravity would disappear, and it would all be over. And man thinks he can create because he can procreate, you see. Yet he can only activate the mysterious process in which God brings into being a new life. Ecclesiastes 11, as you do not know how the spirit comes into the bones of a woman with the child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. God brings into life new life. It's a miracle, a mystery. A man cannot figure out what God is doing. I use my wisdom, says Solomon, to figure it out, but it was beyond me. And what he needed was the wisdom of God, which God, of course, gave him. And so, life is brief, life is boring. We have to try and tidy it up, make it more exciting. Read chapter 1 when you go home tonight. And it talks about nature, just this weary round and round and round. You know, the rivers are flowing and it rains and the river goes up to this sky and makes clouds and the river comes down in rain and then the river goes up and makes clouds and it's a weary round and round in fact it says in chapter one everything's so weary it just goes round and round the daily round and round you know life is boring life is brief and life is boring and life is a bear But somebody put eternity in my heart and somebody gave me the gift of time, though brief, to realize it. And somebody whispered to my soul that I was made for another world. C.S. Lewis's quote. When you find within yourself a desire that nothing on earth can satisfy, the most probable explanation is, I was made for another world. I was made for another world. Though I live my life this side of the front door of forever, somehow I know someone is at home in the universe and he's waiting for me and he's going to ask me, according to Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14, what on earth were you doing? That's what he's going to ask all of us. Will I answer I was chasing the wind? Will I hear him say, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind for you? Or shall it be I will answer him, Lord God, as best I knew how I feared you and I kept your commandments, for that is the reason you created me. And that is my chief end and my highest joy. It's my highest joy. Heard about the little boy who was doing his catechism, what is the chief end of man, that we should love him, fear him, and endure him forever, he said. And to look at some Christians, that's what you'd think it is. I've got to do this. I've just got to be this Christian. No, enjoy him forever. That's the chief end. That's the whole thing. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole thing. That's it. Can there be joy in being obedient? Of course there can. Of course there can. Of course there can. This is the... Grace place and Jesus is joy. God in Galilean cloth making my heart smile. Then I realized, says the man who wrote the book, that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink. 
Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, listen to this, enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He can give you the world, he can give you a castle full of things, but the enjoyment in the things he gives you is also a gift. That's why people can have all these things and people and amass and accumulate and be miserable. Because you have to know him to receive as well the ability, the enabling to enjoy the gifts he gives you. And specifically the simple things and gifts of life like eating, drinking, and labor. See that theme all the way through this book. And the incredible thing is contentment with your lot in life, in the work, whatever it is, is a gift. And he gives with the blessings that he wants us to have in this life the joy in them. The joy in them. Did you see that verse you read? Because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. What are you occupied with? God keeps you occupied with gladness of heart. There's joy in the presence of God. Joy in the presence of God. That's what the Bible says. Joy has to do with the presence of God. And the idea is to be occupied in the inner recesses of your life with God himself. Not God and anything. Not God and people. Not God and things. Not God and fun. Not God and pleasure. Not God and sex. Not God and anything. God, God, God. God's presence gives new dimensions to all things, legitimate things, which Ecclesiastes teaches, are all God's gifts. Know the joy, God and freedom. Outside this country, people don't understand the Americans that are saying, if I lost my freedom, I could never smile again. But joy is not to be found even in the freedoms that we are incredibly privileged to enjoy. Not necessarily found in those things. As I sat in attics and cellars and moved around the underground church in a nation, nation, I saw joy. And I didn't want to come home. And I missed those sweet, sweet women who walked into my life and kicked their shoes off and made themselves at home forever. And I wrote about them, and this is what I said. These sweet women know the difference between hardship and inconvenience. I wonder if we do. Happily, though not without tears, they count ministry a privilege, not a punishment. They don't whine in the middle of trials. They show up at church, even if it takes them two hours by foot to get there, even with the constant threat of imprisonment for their faith. What an incredible privilege and joy to get to know them, love them, serve them, and pray for them. They were sweet enough to let me teach some too. Having a ministry of presence, silence, and tears among them changed me, and hopefully my soul will never return to its original small shape. Thank you, sweet women, for walking into my heart and showing me Christ. From your eyes he beckoned me. From your heart his love was shed till I lost sight of you and saw the Christ instead. And oh, the joy.
No freedom, no money, never been paid their husbands since the doors were closed on their churches and the pews were chopped up and they were all closed down in 85, 75 to 85. Six churches out of 300 left open, all with informers sitting in the pew, writing notes, watching everything they do on the one day they're allowed to meet. Officially, I know the joy. So does their joy depend on freedom? No. On money? No. On things? No. Even on the relationships that is all they have? No. It depends on God. Joy is Jesus. God in Galilean cloth, making my heart smile. I see that the title for my talk is Standing on Holy Ground. (laughs) And you know you're on holy ground when the joy is there. The joy is there, deep, 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 deep joy. Do you know that joy? Well, fear God, keep his commandments. That's the whole thing. And realize that one day you'll be held accountable, not just for what you knew, but what you had a chance to know. Churches on every corner, Bibles, hundreds of Bibles all around. And the fact that you didn't open one will mean nothing at all to God on that day. He will simply say, you could have walked into any church you wanted to, and I will hold you accountable for what you could have found out. Not what you found out, what you could have found out, because I gave you the chance. And oh, the sorrow on that day. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, It's a wonderful little book. You say here over and over again that the man who does not accumulate without being the steward you require him to be and hold the things, the gifts of God you give him so lightly and not tightly, that man will be miserable indeed. Miserable indeed. But oh, the man who is happy with his lot, content in his word, Lord in his work, may we remember the content of contentment is Christ. May we never forget that. And the content of contentment, if be Christ is all that we need and all that we want and all that we love in everything we do, then we will indeed be content and we will know the joy. I thank you for the privilege of meeting people who teach me daily what all this is about. And people like Solomon, who mentors us through his books and through his writings. And Lord, what a sober thought to finish on, that one day, as you say, every hidden thing will be brought to light. Hidden things like the chances we had that we never took. The Bible's that were lying around that we never read, the classes that were provided that we never attended, the services that were there seven days a week that we picked and chose and took time off. And Lord, those are the things you're going to ask us about. Every hidden thing, whether it be good or bad. Lord, may we not stand a front 
you just ashamed and cover our face with our empty hands and bow our uncrowned heads. May we, may we, Lord, of the life that's left to us, just yield it to your hand and take us and make us and break us to the pattern that you have planned. Lord Jesus, we love you, but we need to love you more. Lord Jesus, we serve you, but we need to serve you more. Teach us what really matters. For our lives are a wisp of fog, a vapor, and soon we'll be in your presence. We ask you to sober us with these thoughts and straighten us up, God, and make our lives significant, a significant blessing and not a significant mess. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.